Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. A reminder that the festival will return in 2018, between May 19th and 27th. For this week's episode, we're revisiting an event from the 2017 festival, featuring Colm Tobin in conversation with Sinead Crowley. Thank you very much, Martin, and welcome everybody this evening. Um, I would also like to welcome Colm here. Before we start the chat, Colm, I'd like you to read a little bit, if you don't mind. But maybe first, we have Greek-style weather in Dublin this evening, so we might be quite easy to get into how, how your book makes us feel. But tell us, first of all, where are you taking us in this book? And then you might read a little bit, please. Um, well, th- this is... Um, I mean, it's a mixture of things, but it, it includes a version of the Oristia. Um So the part I'm going to read is the opening of the book. And um, I've used um, a lot of a late play by Euripides um, called Iphigenia in Aulis as well. But, but, but it's a basic story that the, um, in, the, um, in the run-up to the Trojan War, Agamemnon wants the winds to change and um, he appeals to the gods. And uh, the gods say, sure, it will change the winds if you want, but you'll have to sacrifice your daughter, Iphigenia. So he sends a message to his wife, who's Clytemestra to bring Iphigenia with her, that he's going to marry her to the warrior Achilles, and uh, there's going to be a wedding. And um, even when she arrives, he's, he's afraid to tell her. He doesn't have the courage to tell her what it is he has in mind. And she does everything to stop it, to stop the sacrifice. And um, it, it goes ahead. And um, so uh, what she plans then is that when she gets him home, if he comes home victorious from the wars, um, he comes home with Cassandra, that um, she will cut his throat and uh, she will plan this meticulously with her lover, Aegisthus, who she gets involved with. And uh, so the opening is really just afterwards when she's really delighted with herself that all this has worked out. Um, and um, the problem she has, of course, is that once she starts killing people, uh, you know, she seems to really rather enjoy it. Uh, a whole <laughs> I mean, it opens with really her being, I mean, a few pages later, it goes back to the beginning, which is really quite a nice woman on her way to a wedding. And by the end of the book, she's a sort of monstrous figure who can't stop sending out people to kill groups of people and do all sorts of things. I mean, she's quite fierce by the end, really. Um, but um, I, I'm trying to you know, almost get the reader on her side in a certain way. I mean, if that happened to you, what would you do? And um, I don't mean you personally, but I mean generally. <laughs> I'll have a think. And, but this is her, really, where she's just um, so delighted that what she's done has actually succeeded. Um, she's managed to kill her husband, um, Agamemnon, and Cassandra. And uh, she's just, um, in order to, she has all the elders where she wants them because she's kidnapped all their children. So um, they can do nothing, really, against her. So she forces them to have dinner with her. And on the way out, she watches because she's left the bodies outside. Um, with their throats cut, just so they all have to pass them silently. Um, ta- you know, so she... Anyway, this is the opening, just, it's the opening page in a bit of the book. This is her talking. I have been acquainted with the smell of death, the sickly, sugary smell that wafted in the wind towards the rooms in this palace. It is easy now for me to feel peaceful and content. I spend my morning looking at the sky and the changing light. The bird song begins to rise as the world fills with its own pleasures. And then as day wanes, the sound too wanes and fades. I watch as the shadows lengthen. 
So much has slipped away, but the smell of death lingers. Maybe the smell has entered my body and been welcomed there, like an old friend come to visit. The smell of fear and panic. The smell is here like the very air is here. It returns in the same way as light in the morning returns. It is my constant companion. It has put life into my eyes, eyes that grew dull with waiting but are not dull now, eyes that are alive now with brightness. I gave orders that the body should remain in the open under the sun a day or two until the sweetness gave way to stench. And I liked the flies that came, the little bodies perplexed and brave, buzzing after their feast, upset by the continuing hunger they felt in themselves, a hunger that I had come to know too and come to appreciate. We are all hungry now. Food merely whets our appetite. It sharpens our teeth. Meat makes us ravenous for more meat, as death is ravenous for more death. Murder makes us ravenous, fills the soul with satisfaction that is fierce and then luscious enough to create a taste for further satisfaction. A knife piercing the soft flesh under the ear with intimacy and precision, and then moving across the throat as soundlessly as the sun moves across the sky, but with greater speed and zeal, and then his dark blood flowing with the same inevitable hush as dark night falls on familiar things. Now, I'm going to start by saying something that's probably rather obvious, which is we're not in Wexford anymore. Can no, Toto, Toto, I've got the feeling we're not in Wexford anymore. Yeah, yeah. Why are you bringing us away? Why are you bringing us to this part of time, this part of history? What attracted you to it? Well, it was, it was partly that I had um, spent 13 or 14 years writing Nora Webster. And I had in, um, I'd interrupted the writing of it a number of times to write Brooklyn and to write The Testament of Mary. But really, from, from about 2000 until 2014, that, that was really the only thing I was thinking about. And every day I would put some, <laughs> would erase some, I mean, sometimes I wouldn't even write it, I'd just have a really good idea at night, and it'd be rotten by the morning, so luckily I wouldn't have to write it at all. <laughs> and, um, but by the time it was finished, there, there wasn't anything more in that story, in the town, in the whole atmosphere of childhood, or the whole atmosphere that, of things I remember. I mean, it may come back, it may be that there's, there's something that I just didn't think of that's there all the time and, I'm, and it's waiting, but it doesn't feel like that. And um, when, I was, when I was writing The Testament of Mary, which is a short novel I wrote about, about Mary, the mother of Jesus, I was using very consciously um, Greek voices. I was using the idea that out of powerlessness comes power if you're using speech and that the illusion is created that the person who's speaking, for example, Antigone, might only speak once. So this extraordinary drama is created that while the king, Creon, the king can speak anytime he likes. It's, the, it's got the texture, the dry texture of legislation. But when she speaks, it might be only this time. And the audience is getting that immediacy, that, 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 that sense, this will not come again. This is happening now and only now. And so that I was using that sort of work um, in the making of Mary. And in doing that, I was looking at the various translations. And um, there, there were some interesting new translations then coming by, say, Anne Carson was working on translations. 
and with, with particularly good introductions, sharp introductions. Sometimes the introductions to some of the other translations were so dull that you'd wonder if the people who'd written them had actually read the plays in the first place. I mean, they put you off, they put you off everything, they put you off reading, really. Um, but it, as I was reading some of that, I went back and looked at other material uh, about these plays, and I realised that there was a play I hadn't read called Iphigenia in Aulis, and I'd never seen. Uh, maybe it's because it's such a terrible title. The title must, might be great in the original Greek, you know, Iphigenia in Aulis, but I mean, a play called Electra. If you're passing a theatre, you sort of go in to see what was going on. But with Iphigenia in Aulis, you might think, well, I'll see that next week, or I'll, you know, <laughs> it, it, might, it might come back to, you know, uh, there might be a second run at some point. But if only he'd called it something else. But uh, anyway, the minute I read it, I realised this is a story that I can work with, that, I, that I, I, could, I, I could see it and hear it as monologue, as what, the parts I've just read. So I did that. Um, I mean, I wrote the first, say, 30 pages very, very quickly. Often, I mean, I love this new, you know this new guy, Leo Vradker, um, who, wants to be, who wants to be Taoiseach? Well, it's lovely the way he's spoken so well about those of us who get up early in the morning. We, we've never been recognised before. We've always been abused and put down and put in our place and people insulting us. But um, I started to get up really early. I think before Leo has ever been up. Like, I started to get up <laughs> at around half three in the morning. Um, I would get up for an hour or two. I would, go, I would go back to bed. I don't think he's including that in his, uh, <laughs> in his people he's standing up for. Maybe the other boy, Simon, the prince from Cork, is for people who go back to bed, having got up for a while, looked around, had their breakfast, you know, you know listened, listened to the radio a bit and thought, this is not for me, and gone back. It's that lovely sleep. Uh, but I would get up really in the middle of the night. And I, so I worked and I had that written. And then I realised I should go on. And um, then when that was done, it wasn't enough. I just thought if I published it on its own, it would be like the Testament of Mary. And it had the same tongue. I thought I needed to go on with the story to actually see what would happen if, if, if I brought in the other voices. But especially if I brought the tone down a notch, as though I were writing a sort of in the sonata form, and I could go into a sort of slow movement from a skirt or from, from something, or for a presto, something that was much faster. You mentioned there, you mentioned Nora, you mentioned Mary, and what you have in this book as well is a mother, and she does what she does. In a way, from being a mother, I think you write so beautifully about the loss of that daughter. I think you do end up understanding, certainly why she begins to do what she is, because she's completely betrayed, and she's lost her beloved child. Yeah, he's made a complete fool out of her, but it's also the fact that she's seen his weakness. I, I can't remember, sometimes I can't remember. I must go back and read the originals to see what I took and what I made up, because um, what I, um, I mean, it might be in the Euripides, um, but I might have made it up, which is that he doesn't have the courage to tell her um, and, um, when she arrives, but it's also that he, knows that he knows what he should do, which is, not, which is not sacrifice his daughter, and he knows what he will do, which is sacrifice his daughter. Because um, the men, the people all around him, really realised, you know, we have to go to war, we have to win, we, have, we, have, we were all waiting to go. And um, so she sees his weakness. And that's something, I think, in, in my book, that she hasn't really been fully conscious of before, that he's actually not a hero, he's not a leader, he's a weak man. And the, the weakness, when, when she sees it, something um, in her, 
I suppose, changes in relation to him that actually she wants nothing to do with him when he comes back, that, that, that he has done something. He has not had the courage to stand up to all his own people. And um, he's also picked on her because um, what he does with her is he puts her on, he just, she's doing a lot of screaming and shouting, so he decides it's a silence her to get her away. He just has her buried underground for three days and three nights without, without food or water. And it's during those days that she gets the idea, which is absolutely essential for the book, that um, she, um, she's not going to ask the gods for anything ever again. So she's going to decide herself um, if she will do something or not and that the gods thing is all nonsense. It's essential because it's very hard to write a novel. It really is if you have the gods coming down all the time to annoy people or ask them for things or demand things and the reader just turns the face, oh my God, some other you know, Greek god with a very short name or a very long name is gonna come down and demand something else and the reader or the, the, well, the, the protagonist has no agency, has no power and you just think, um, I mean, Jane Austen didn't do that, you know, if she had, imagine if she had, you know, Mr. Darcy prayed hard that night and God in the morning told him he should ride his, he should ride his horse over towards it, you know, you know, it's just, you just say, well, why, why should I read this? And which is interesting because that section where she's buried under the ground, it's so physical. We're used to hearing kind of stories about these people, as you say, but you're, you're literally down and dirty. You're in the hole with her. You're describing what it's like. So you're bringing us physically back to what it felt like to be part of that. Yeah, I'm sort of an old-fashioned realist in that <laughs> sense that if you're going to put someone under the ground for three days, you, you nearly need to put yourself under the ground. I mean, I didn't do that quite. Um, but I had her under the ground and I was thinking about all the little creepy crawly things that would really annoy her under there and the thought she would have and the little chink of light. But then I needed one more thing, you know, it's not in three days, it's just, so every so often they would just throw a bucket of water on top of her and it would just soak her, but it would obviously, um, she'd not be able to drink much of it. And just, but that was good because it, it made her know that they knew she was there. But yeah, I had to sort of make the reader feel you're under the ground, under the ground, where she can't even stand or sit properly, you know, and she can't lie down. And night is becoming day, becoming night. She doesn't know how long she'll be kept there. And things are crawling all around her. And she's, yeah, so that has to be physically um, established in full. So even when she's, they try and take her out, she's so stiff and, and just the sheer humiliation of it. Uh, they're almost all laughing at her. That, that you do, I'm trying to build up a, a, you know, a sort of image or, or a sort of image of her that you realize when she goes back, she cannot let this rest, that her daughter, and you know, while she has a very bad relationship with Electra, which, you know, the Electra complex, um, but she doesn't have it with Iphigenia, that it is as though that she loves this daughter and really wants to attend her wedding. And the relationship between them seems very soft and easy, and the mother's very protective of her daughter. And so the fact that her daughter has been, you know, ceremoniously murdered in this way with all these men around watching and that her, the mother has been humiliated in this way, the reader's entitled to feel, actually, I would murder him too. And once you start, once you open that particular bottle, you give the reader a funny sense of um, these things that happen that you think are very far away from you might be much closer to you than you think. 
And just to explain to people, there's distinct sections in the book as well. And in another section, her son and other boys are kidnapped. And there is more, there's a physical hardship. They have to go for a long walk. But speaking about things people understand, I got a lot of Ireland in that section when I was reading it. And maybe they're kept overnight in a dormitory, for example. Now, when I read that, I read industrial schools. Was that something that was on your, in your head when you were writing that section? Yeah, that um, it's either a problem or it's a gift that Orestes, who is her younger, who is, who is the youngest of the family, the only boy of Agamemnon and Clytemestra, that um, he, he has been, um, he's away somewhere and his sister Electra is waiting for him to return so that she can deal with her mother in turn. And um, where is he? There's no evidence anywhere where he is. And that's a gift in a way because you can start imagining well, where would he be? And then you think, well, the first thing is that if you were going to murder your husband, you would like to get your eight-year-old out of the house for the day, just so he wouldn't be around listening. And, um, but in order to do that, she has to get her lover, Aegisthus, to remove him. Aegisthus, of course, realizes, ah, this will be my one way of gaining power in this household. I will take him and remove him to where the other boys are being held who have also been kidnapped so that he suddenly has power over Clytemestra, who, who is his lover, you know, and, and he, um, he gets this power. But the, but the boy ends up walking through this landscape and going to, um, and you can say it reminded you of an industrial school, but someone who read the book quite early said to me, um, who was in the same boarding school as I was in, he said, well, I know where that is. <laughs> and uh, we both just laughed, saying, that picture, because I went to boarding school just for the last two years. So I arrived not knowing anyone. Well, they all knew each other. And I sort of make my way in, into this space where there were 300 of us as boarders, sort of unimaginable. And the refectory and the, and the dormitories and the whole business of silences and everyone watching and the sort of threats of violence and all of that was there. And um, so I didn't have to think of, I think I didn't have to think industrial school. I was there. <laughs> and then um, when they escape and go across the landscape, they're walking across, um, uh, the, they find eventually there's an old woman and she has dogs to protect her and they kill the dogs. And the way they kill the dogs is exactly how the dog is killed in the thorn, how Cucullin kills the dogs by putting um, you know, a, a ball or a stone into the dog's throat. And the woman says, I will have no one to protect me. And they say, as happens in the thorn, we will protect you. So it's the childhood of Cucullin to that extent. And then the old woman eventually, sometimes when the wind is up and they're telling stories, and she, the story of Helen of Troy has already come to her as story, even though it's only recent, because Clytemestra's mother is Leda, who's also the mother of um, Helen of Troy. So this is, this is the recent war, and, but it comes to her as, as myth or as folktale. It's already fragmented. And then once that happened, I realized the whole business of the swan and swans and um, Leda and the swan that um, of Zeus coming in the form of a swan, that we have our own swan story in Ireland, which is the story of the children of Lyr. So I just imagined this, this place is on the edge of the sea with the wind blowing, a lot of boats coming and going, that the story of the children of Lyr had arrived from Ireland and it hit Greece. I mean, it sounds like a Greek story. And um, the, um, the, you know, the story of the children who were turned into swans for, nine, for, for 900 years. So I sort of threw that into just for good luck. And, um, but, but there's also later on where um, Justice is talking to um, 
I think he's talking to Electra and, he, and, uh, and he's saying um, about um, something they have to do, someone they have to attack. And they say, well, you know, we have to be lucky just once. They have to be lucky all the time, which is what the IRA said to Margaret Thatcher after the Brighton bomb, which I always thought was the most frightening thing if someone said it to you, you know, we have to be lucky, you know, they want to kill you. We have to be lucky just once. You have to be lucky all the time. But it didn't seem to take a feather out of Margaret Thatcher. Um, who died in her bed, but nonetheless, as a phrase, I thought, I always thought it was Danny, Danny Banger, you know, Danny Banger, Danny, Danny Morrison. Mm -hmm. He was a good phrase maker. It sounded like Danny anyway, to me. That section, When the Boys Are By The Sea, it's, it's it, there's a gentleness in it, and there's a relationship between them, there's friendship and there's a relationship. Was that, I mean, it's a calmness, I suppose, at the heart of the novel that has so much violence at either end of it. Yeah, I wanted to bring, I mean, I mean the first section is all heightened tongue, first person speech. It's almost like the warrior queen is letting us know the things she did and how, how ready she is now for further attacks on people. And then you stop and you just bring it down quite a number of notches into a very gentle tone, which is the tone of the perception of maybe a 12-year-old or, or an 11-year-old. And the adventures he goes through are the attempt are, are, are to allow the language to mirror the way he sees things and notices things and registers things. So it goes right down. But I also wanted to bring him into a space that was almost like space from a folk tale, that the old woman is almost a kayak. It's almost a space where, you know, that the wars are, are, are being mentioned as distant things but that actually there's a possibility of happiness, of community, the three boys and the woman fully protected, the, the sea on three sides, and, and a sense of plenty of things growing and, and, and of ease between them, that, that, it, that it's almost like a sort of um, high brazil or, or a, or a Shangri-La, a sort of haven that is going to be between moments of, of the most savage violence, and that they come from violence, they will return to violence, but in the middle, you need the space created where there is a sort of almost ethereal or, or folktale sort of happiness. And had you been to Greece, had you traveled much? I mean, when I read that, I can see it, I can smell the vines, there's so much, it's rural life and there's farming. Had you, had you traveled much? Or? Um, no, I hadn't, I mean, I had been in Greece, but I hadn't traveled that much, I don't really know Greece. Um, but, uh, but I mean, I had been there, but I wrote a lot of those, I, I wrote all of those two sections in Southern California, where you, you know, and, and I wrote one particular, you know, under a tree, like it was so, it was so warm. And you do have the, some of the same things growing and, and, and some of the same bird song and, and all, all of that. And also the desert, the possibility of rocks and desert once you go out into Southern California. Unfortunately, they have to leave for them. In one way, they would possibly love to spend their part of their lives by the sea, but they have to come back and, and, and the, the action has to start again. So talk to us what happens then in that, that final section of the novel. Well, you know, um, he meets... Uh, the, 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 I mean, the problem with Orestes is, is that he has no strategy, that he's the youngest in the family, that, that he has no plans, that even though he's a king, even though he's, his, his father is Agamemnon, his mother is Clytemestra, they're both very powerful people, but almost because of that, and you know, his sister Electra is very powerful, he really isn't powerful. He's quite passive, and he doesn't really know what's coming ever. He's very easily led, but people like him. He's slightly like Eilish in, Eilish in Brooklyn, you know, the people <coughs> like him, and, but, but he isn't the one who ever decides things. 
people push him around a bit. And, um, and so um, he, would e he would easily stay all of his life there with this boy Leander, who, who's clearly cut out to be a leader, who's always decisive. And, um, but Leander says, no, that I, I want to see my grandfather, that I think my grandfather might still be alive, and I want to see him, and I'm the only son of that whole, of that whole family, I have to go back to them. But Orestes isn't sure that he wants to go back at all, because he doesn't know who's alive, who's dead, or who killed who. He doesn't know that his mother killed his father. He knows his father is dead, but he doesn't know how it happened. And um, so they walk back I mean, across this desert landscape. And of course, um, as that comes to an end, the next section opens, and it's Electra. Electra just saying, this, these steps there are the steps where my mother is going to be murdered. I know that. And so you realize that Electra's on the war path. And um, she is being visited at the same time by the ghost of her father and the ghost of her sister, who have no interest really in how they died. They're coming back into the world for something else. They're seeking one more thing from the world. But she has, she's busy. She's, she's a sort of cross between Ophelia and Electra. She's, and of course, once Orestes comes back, luckily I've got Hamlet at my disposal, where, you know, in other words, he's a young man. He has come back to a palace. His father was murdered, his mother has taken a lover, and he's wandering uneasily in the corridors. And uh, so th that was great, I, you know, I was grateful for, uh, thanks, thanks for Hamlet. And I used a bit of Macbeth earlier, I used a bit of Macbeth earlier on, and I used also bits of Wagner's The Ring, the whole idea of the twilight of the gods, of a time when the gods are sort of fading. And, um, and so um, Clytemestra is really getting interested in murdering more people. Electra's really interested in murdering her mother, Clytemestra, and poor old Orestes is wandering around trying to listen in to see what's going on while Aegisthus, his mother's lover, seems to be having sex with every single person in the palace. And poor old Orestes is not having sex with anyone and he has no strategy, he doesn't want to murder anyone in particular. And um, you know, you realise he's the most harmless person there is until he isn't. Because of course somebody like that who has, who has no strategy is a lethal weapon under certain pressures. When he finally realizes what his mother has done, he blames his mother for, his, for the killing of his father, for his own kidnapping, and then begins to realize the amount of mayhem his mother is causing elsewhere, even as she pretends that she's somebody else entirely. And so it's very easy for his sister to put pressure on him. Um, uh, you know, and, and again, I made up quite a lot of this because it's, it's, it's not in the... Um, it's not in the original. I mean, these Greek playwrights had all the luck because they could just have the killings off stage where you just hear a shriek and you realize that was somebody else dead. In a novel, you can't do that. You have to build, build, build up with detail the character so that you come to think this is someone who, who could. He's not a hero and he's not a psychopath, but he could, under certain pressures, murder his mother. And he will do so because those pressures will arise. And so... Um, and so that's the book, um, except, he, that, except that I bring in various other characters. Yeah. His friend Leander has a sister called Dianthe, who is the only survivor of a massacre. She sort of crawls out from these dead bodies. And she looks after, um, she looks after Orestes, but the two of them are, are these sort of two broken figures about the place together. Uh, they sleep together and she's pregnant, but there's a moment in the book, I'm, I shouldn't be giving it away because people are meant to read this book, Spoiler but I, I mean, don't, don't read it, I'm just, just listen to me for a minute. Um, <laughs> that, um, 
that, that um, she's pregnant and sort of Orestes seems rather pleased about this, you know, cause he's ha and she says to him, no, look, I, I, th I, think, I don't think what we do could make anyone pregnant. And he realized, poor old Orestes, he doesn't even know about sex. Like he's really, he's really having a hard time. And what I was trying to do then was get the idea of the Furies, which is, which is in the Oresteia, and find a way of putting it into a book, into a contemporary novel. I, I mean, the novel is still set in ancient Greece, but I mean for a contemporary reader, where instead of all the noise the Furies make and the accusations, you bring it down to zero, where it's silence. He's being shunned by people. No one wants him in the room. He's the man that murdered his mother. His sister doesn't want him, his old friend um, Leander doesn't want him, and, and even, you know, Ianthe is just sort of looking after him. He's even more lonely, more solitary, more strange than he was at the beginning of the book, and almost more childish. And that that is the, almost the punishment that, that, he, that has been meted out to him for what he has done for the killing of his mother. So instead of it being all noisy with the gods, all the you know, business of that, I brought it down that he's just someone alone in his room wondering what happened, wondering what hit him, wondering how he did what he did. And everyone seems to know everything, and he knows nothing. And, um, but she's still pregnant, and um, I'm not gonna give that part away, why she's pregnant, but, or how she's pregnant. But, but the, the novel does end, I suppose, in a moment where there is some possibility of something being healed, of something new being created. With, with certain exceptions, there's a moment where um, Aegisthus has survived everything, no one has murdered him. They broke his legs at one point, they didn't bother murdering him. And there's a moment where, where Orestes looks at him and you realise, oh no, when this book is over, Orestes is clearly going to go after him as well. Orestes has, once he has started to murder, he's got interested in the idea. And there's a guard who's been telling him lies, and you think he might murder the, that guard too. So clearly there's gonna be an aftermath of the book where they're all gonna keep murdering each other. There's no, there's no hope really, I don't think. I think people can see by what you're saying in your descriptions, I mean, it is incredibly cinematic. Is it something you could imagine transferring to a screen at any stage, or was that in your mind at all when you were writing it? Um, I think it's very difficult uh, not to, I mean, you've got a, the big problem you have with any of this stuff is there's a terrible film called Ben-Hur. I don't know if anyone's ever seen it. Who played, it, uh, who played Ben-Hur? Heston. Charlton Heston. Heston. That awful Charlton Heston. And, um, <laughs> you know, with all that, and all those chariots, and, and wasn't there a terrible thing uh, that they made about ancient, ancient Rome with, um, I don't know what actors were in, but, you know, where they were eaten by, you know, oh. what's that called? Gladiator. Gladiator. Yeah, I was. I was somewhere. This is great. It's like a quiz show. Keep I, going. I was. I was in some. I was in somewhere. And Gladiator was on. And God Almighty, you realise if, if you know, you've got to be careful with a book like this that people won't think that. Um, God, this is, this is Ben Hur speaking. You know, so you've got to keep chariots to a minimum and Ben Hur speak, and you, know, you really are up against it with this. So you're, you're, you're trying to go against cinematic. Um, you're trying to make the violence very, very precise. And um, so I don't know about that. And then someone told me it was either like House of Cards, or there's another thing called... Game of Thrones, I think people Game keep of Thrones. But I, 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 just, I mean, I don't have time to watch th that sort of thing, so I, d I didn't know about either of them. Mm. But I presume they're very bad programs Game of Thrones is a big investment. It's, it's, it's a large chunk. I haven't I, seen I it either, it's I have very to bad. admit. But anyway, I so, I, so I didn't... Um, <laughs> Any advance on so very I, bad. So, so, so I wasn't casting this in my head. 
you know, although I, if, you know, if Fiona Shaw called me up, I would have something to say to her. <laughs> but, um, but I wasn't casting it in my head, you know. But given that we're on the topic, I, I mean, I would like to ask you, and I've, I've interviewed you with my RTE hat on just before the whole Brooklyn experience. Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy getting up from the writing desk and doing the Oscar thing which you got to do for a season? Um, the publicity was a lot of fun because um, we all just laughed a lot. I mean, John, I, we had to sort of stop laughing because we were meant to try and, you know, encourage people to vote for us, you know, and... Uh, I mean, there was one event in London where John Crowley was talking and he just said something about being from Cork and I just interrupted him to say, John, d d are they still eating their young down there? <laughs> and I realised, oh, st stop talking like that, we're meant to be serious, you know. <laughs> but the, yeah, the, uh, the, um, the Oscars was tremendous. Um, uh, um, uh, you see, I just wrote the novel and there's a different door you go in if you just wrote the novel, you know. Um, and my mother always told me that when you're going anywhere, you should wash under your arms. That's an Irish thing, you wash under your arms before you go places. So I washed under my arms and I put on a monkey suit and a car came, it was great. And, but then I realised that you go in the other door. And it's not just there's no red carpet, there's no carpet. You just go in the door. And there's a fence, there's a fence blocking you off from all the people who are up for the Academy Awards. A fence, you know. And if I had reached over the fence, um, I mean, it's bigger than the wall Donald Trump wants to build in Mexico. I could have hit Charlotte Rampling at one point because I could see people. I could have hit her just on the head, just here with my hand. But I didn't, I didn't think she'd take kindly to that. She's not. And then a man, because I wanted to say to Saoirse, you know, I hope you win, and to Nick Hornby, and I wanted you to see everybody. And um, then a man got on my case and he said, you, sir, are going in there, sir meaning I was to stop trying to take photographs. I had a little airport camera. You know those uh, uh, car cameras you buy in chemist shops? You know, that you know, to throw away? I had one of those and I was taking photographs and he said I was to stop taking photographs and I was to go inside. And I said, I wrote the not, and he said, you go inside, sir. <laughs> and, um, but the advantage, the, the real advantage was that you got, um, um, I was with a friend of mine and we could sit, um, we were right up the back, um, so I tried to wave, but there was no, I mean, it didn't, you know, I mean, nobody noticed. But um, there were ad breaks all the time, and the stars couldn't, couldn't leave. But there was a bar just outside, and they had little tumblers of white wine, which were really delicious. And uh, so we could go out every two minutes, it seemed there was an ad break, and we could go out and, and we could guzzle a glass of white wine. And then there was a party later on, and I saw, I could have touched them as well, Elton John, but I didn't. Which and, then, didn't. <laughs> and then there was a woman, I clearly was somebody, and I said to someone, who's that woman making all that fuss? And she was called Lady Gaga. <laughs> so I saw her, but I didn't see anybody else. And um, so it was great. <laughs> and then I, then I went home. And it was a great film. So. Yeah, and, yeah, and then I went home. Yes. So that was, that was, my, that was my Oscar That's night. Right. I can confirm, I have been a journalist at the Oscar, and if you're in that room, I'm at the other room about three rows back, so we're much further away. Um, what was it like then to go back to the desk? Was it difficult or did you just kind of turn that bit of your brain off and um, start again? You know, I was writing, um, I was writing this book and um, so um, I also had a deadline to produce stuff about 1916 for the, for the centenary. So yeah, it was a question of getting up the next morning um, at Leo Varadkar time and, um, you know, doing your allotted number of words for the day and um, that, that, that was it, really, yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. It was, it was a lovely little break. And um, it also just made, made clear, you, you know, you're just a novelist and there are more important things than you, such as Hollywood. 
you know, and um, you know, it puts you firmly in your place, really. You know. And given that you are now back at the desk and this is out, can we ask you what are you working on at the moment? Are you working at the moment? Um, well, well, I'm working on a book of sh a book of short stories, um, and um, hope to have that done by the end of the year. And there's another novel I've been sort of nearly, nearly finishing for ages. So I sort of work hard, you know, and I've, I've been, yeah, I've been working. You've gone, I mean, you've gone back to Greek myths here. You've written the Testament of Mary. Are you going to stay, do you think, in that period? Or will you move back and forth? No, I'm trying to write a contemporary novel for, for, for a change. I mean, I wrote the 1950s, which for me is uh, as near contemporary as I can think of, even though I wasn't alive for most of it. But uh, I'm trying to write a contemporary novel, but um, it's, it's hard. At this stage, I'm going to throw the discussion open to the floor to see does anybody have any questions about Clymenestra or anybody else that you've been listening to. So there are people with microphones uh, hovering around, so it's really bright, but I'll try and see you. So does anyone have a question for Colm about this book or anything else? Shout. There's someone, I, I can see someone's hand up Somebody right here? back there. And I think there's a microphone coming to you. Uh, good evening, Colm. I enjoyed Nora Webster very much, and she hasn't had much airtime this evening. I, I know you said it took you a long time to write that book. For me, she's still, she's still part of my life. How did you get into the mind of the woman so well? I don't know many male writers that can do that. Um, the, um, I suppose um, part of the reason why it, was so, it took so long to write was that, uh, that a lot of it was based on things that happened. And because of that, it was very hard to put shape on it. I mean, it wasn't like Brooklyn where, you know, you there's an instant arc for the story where, you know, she goes to Brooklyn, she settles down there, she comes home, and then she has to decide. You know, it, it sort of goes up and around uh, that you can actually see a shape to it. But um, the problem with experience, the problem with what actually happens is that it's linear. It's, it's a dotted line, a faint line, or a straight line. And it's very hard to see how to shape it. And um, um, I, I, I didn't want to write it as autobiography because I was 12 when it began. And <coughs> it's very hard to give a 12-year-old enough sensibility or, or enough inner life or enough possibilities, like choices, chances, to actually make a novel. I mean, you could make a short story, you know, sad Irish boy goes home from school feeling sad. And when he arrives home, he's sort of sad at home. And we've sort of read those stories, and I'm sure I've written some of them, but um, what happened was that I really, really, because my father had died, I was really watching my mother very, very closely. I remember every single thing she said and did. And so I began not only to put that down, but to imagine what was going on in her mind as well that was giving her calls to say the things she said or to do the things she did. And there was nothing very dramatic in it. Um, it was just those few years as someone rebuilds her life. But there's a moment later on in the book in Nora Webster where she, it occurs to her that her son, who's clearly me, the, you know, the stammering idiot one, um, who, um, who <coughs> that it seemed to her that he, he has been watching me more carefully than I've been watching him. And that was true. And so um, it, it, it wasn't that I, got, that I was able to do that to a woman. I did that very specifically to someone. I was in the, myself and my younger brother were there in the house with her. I, we were, I was there for three years between the ages of 12 and 15, 
in the house, just the three of us, with that palpable absence, not only of my father, but of, of some of our siblings who had gone to university or had gone away. So just the three of us were there, and all I did was watch, notice, register, remember. And so trying to get that into a novel took an awful lot of work because some of it was no use. Things that happened were, were not in any way dramatic or in any way useful, but other things were, even the, sometimes the smallest things. So that, I mean, there's a scene in it, for example, where they come back from an aunt's house on a Sunday night and they watch Gaslight. And the two boys are, who are 12 and 8, I think, are very frightened by it. And the three of them become very frightened by Ingrid Bergman in, in, in Gaslight. And I bet you if you look back, you will find, there was only one channel, um, it was just called RTE and uh, Television, the old days. And I bet you you'll find that has to be on one of those Sunday nights because we, we watched that. You know, in other words, that scene is exactly down to the smallest detail what happened that night. It was a Sunday night. And other things I made up just because I needed things. Um, some of the singing is made up, but some of the music is not. So, th so that's how the novel was written. It was written from just being someone who couldn't stop watching. I, I almost did nothing else except watch. I just didn't seem to be able to do anything at school, so I must have been doing something. I think I was watching. Do we have another question? I have a follow-up question about that one. Yeah. Did you, uh, you said that it, what was hard about writing those events was that uh, actual events happen in a linear way, and so did you find yourself wanting to like fight back imposing this dramatic structure? Did you want to do that? Did you want to like add some sort of big climax at the end? Or like there, yeah. Was that there, that storytelling impulse in you that you constantly mm. had to push away? And, and, and it sounds, I mean, how do you do that if, I don't want to call it boring uh, if real life yeah. is, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah I know yeah. what you mean. Um, I suppose the storytelling impulse was there enough for me to realize that if I tried it, I would lose the story. That if I had her winning the lottery or, um, you know, r running away to Brooklyn or having a nervous breakdown, or that something really dramatic occurring, that I would lose the story, I would lose the sort of music of the story, which was, which was almost piano music, it was, uh, was, was, was a solo instrument playing in, 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 in a minor key, and that um, therefore I had to keep the key always in my head, this is written in a minor key, keep the minor, attempt to use a minor key to have a major effect without moving out of the key, and um, so, therefore, um, nothing big. So that was, I was absolutely certain about that, that nothing big was to happen um, at any point in the book. That I was just, and that's why I, I was just, a, if, if you cannot get enough drama from just her going out for the first time with her friend, and that first night out without the anchor of her husband, if you cannot get drama from that, you're no good. And, and just, you know, you should, get another job and um, that that night just go through that night very very slowly so, so, you're, so you're trying to get something enormously emotional from just her realizing that her husband wasn't with her he was dead and that she's looking around wondering well how will I know when to go because normally they would just look at one another and they would work out it's time to go but she's going to be going on her own if you can't get that right you shouldn't, you know, that I really, really was, was trusting the idea that part of the, I suppose, aim of fiction is to allow that sort of what I might, what I might call low-key 
provincial moment in the life of someone who's, not, who's of no importance, who's no ostensible importance, to actually matter enormously. But that has actually been the bedrock of fiction from Chekhov to Flaubert to John McGahern here to Richard Ford to, to you know, like many, to, to, to Alice Munro, to Alice McDermott, Mary Lavin. There's so many writers have worked in this way that I, I trusted the, I trusted the tradition um, and I attempted not to put too much colour into it or betray it. But you spoke then, just to pick, you, to pick up on that, when you came to write House of Names, then you were able to do something completely Yeah, I could let loose. Yeah. In other words, I could get a big orchestra, you know, I could get mixed Bartok and Wagner, any noise I wanted to make, and bang, you know, yeah. I could have her, you know, ancient Greece murder shouting, just to get over the fact that there'd be no more Nora Webster, it was all over. And I, I did feel, once the book was finished, I thought, well, that's, I'll never be able to do that again. You know, I'll never, that story will never come back again. Any questions from, yep. Maybe I could try, try shouting. Um, uh, thank you very much for so much of your work. I haven't read House of Names yet. But Brooklyn keeps on staying with me for some strange reason. And I'm wondering about the, the creative process. When you're writing it, did you consider where she should go? Did you have doubts about her final destination? Um, what, what happened was that, that it, it, it's, it's in about page three of Nora Webster. Um, so it was written first as a tiny little paragraph of Nora Webster, the story of Brooklyn, where her mother comes to the house. and. Um, the reason why it was written was that I went to Texas to teach um, in Austin for a semester. And uh, it was one way of getting away from Nora Webster. I was doing anything sometimes to get away from it. And um, I mean, I would even wash socks. And um, uh, that, um, but I felt homesick in Austin. It was the first I'd ever been from the sea. And there was something about Austin. It's what Brendan Bean said about Toronto. It'll be lovely when they finish it. You know, and I, I mean, to some extent, they have finished it in, in, in a, a bit now, but uh, it did need finishing. And I was really was lonely, and, and I woke up in the morning especially. You know, things, I mean, you know, things that come to go through your mind lying in bed in the morning in a funny city, in a, in, in a, in a sublet apartment is, I began to miss things like Morning Ireland. You know, you know the ad breaks that seem to get louder. Uh, you know, th than the programme, just in case you're not buying whatever it is they want you to buy. And, and then it says in the papers, and, and, then, and then Ryan Tuberty. I mean, I mean, imagine missing Ryan, and I mean, I love Ryan Tuberty, but imagine missing him, you know, and um, Cahill McQuilla, you know, and, and, and then the Irish Times, and then, you know, Irish bread and rain, and, you know, the general Fine Gael. And, um, you know, imagine missing Fine Gael. <laughs> But uh, anyway, um, uh, um, but I really did want to go home. And um, so when I came home, I decided to reread what I'd written of Nora Webster. I found that little story. And whatever I'd just been through, the whole idea of going and coming back, actually, um, I, had, I had all the emotion I needed for the story. And then the question was how to... Um, how to end it, really. I mean, I mean in other words, if you, have a, if you have that decision to be made, how you work it out. Um, and um, I, w I was never really sure what to do. And so I was, un I was as unsure as she was until she was sure. 
and then I let it go like that. Um, and, uh, but um, I, I didn't really have um, the entire way that she would go in my head as I was writing the book, because I was in her mind so much. I was going with her flow, I was going with the flow, you know, just to see where, what she would do next. But the thing about missing home, I mean, going away, being in America, missing home, um, and I'm, um, I, I mean, it really is, uh, it isn't just that they drive on the wrong side of the road in America, it is that, um, you know, you go in to get a coffee or something and someone says, you know, do you want this to go or to stay? It's like an accusation. So I, I wouldn't quite know what I, you know, in Ireland you might say, well, I, oh, I don't know, I might have that here, or, well, I don't know, is there a seat? You know, but in, in America you really have to know before you go up whether you want to go or to, go or to stay. I used to find that very difficult. You know, and I wish I just, I just wish I was at home where I could just look confused and the person would say, ah, well, whatever way you want it, just, you know, to be all right. And, um, so, um, but, but anyway, I sort of put all that business into the book of, you know, the first weeks away from home and missing home and then getting used to being away and then the going back home. And, and I found that when I lived in Spain, especially, that I would come home ready to tell them the whole news of Spain but they'd be much more interested in telling me the whole news of Enescorti, as though Spain wasn't really a place much at all, and there was Enescorti where the real things were happening. Did I know about so-and-so? And I put all that into the book as well. Is there another? Thank you. In, in Greek mythology, the killing happens because the family is basically cursed and it's because of genealogy and it's going further. And in a way, it seems you dissolve the curse into psychology. So what, what, uh, what remains of the curse? The uh, aftermath. Yeah, you're absolutely because right it's about going that. Further. No, no, you're absolutely right about that. That, that, that it was, I had to abandon all of that business of, um, of the curse and of the gods deciding what people would do. In other, words, in other words, to make it into a novel, um, if it's already preordained what each of them will do, and they're merely working that out, it may work on the stage as drama, but once you're trying to, uh, as you say, um, psychologize, or once you're involved with, with motive, with people deciding what they will do, then you have to abandon the other business. So to a large extent, it is a contemporary novel, written for a reader who lives in a world where people in general who, who have choices also have agency, have chances, can confront their destiny in various ways according to their own decisions um, and according to luck. Um, so um, I, I, I realized early on that if I just let the curse in to the book, you would just turn the page and see the curse was just being fulfilled. I, I think you could probably do it in a poem where you were just working with the language, but in a novel where you really are trying to build the character. I wanted the characters to be in the full tradition that I know of characters in fiction, you know, arising from the novel, especially the 19th century novel, or the novels that I'm particularly interested in, which are the say the novels of figures like um, Henry James or George Eliot or Jane Austen or Joseph Conrad, so that there, it, it, the, the curse cannot be there for that reason. And so for, um, 
I mean, I, I mean, I think that there must be Greek purists out there who are in a rage about this. Um, but um, but 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 there is there there actually isn't a choice if you want to make it into a novel. I think there there may be a choice if you wanted to adapt it for the theatre or write a poem about it. When you mentioned those authors, and, and that's something else I meant to say earlier, like there's an element of family saga to this. You know, there's an element of the great novels where you see people's choices having impact on other people's, but also family relationships, and they're very real people. I mean, I think one of the things a novel can do is that it can show you what someone's thinking and what someone has been plotting, and then show you what they're saying. And you can't really get that as dramatically in cinema or in theatre or, or in poetry, um, is um, that there are moments where Clytemestra is just sitting at the table talking about the heat and our talking about the food or the servants. And sitting beside her is her daughter who's desperate to murder her. Aegisthus is doing everything possible, having sex with the entire palace, and also trying to get power. And Orestes is watching all of them and will do anything. So it looks like an ordinary family scene, but actually the reader knows much more than, e than any single one of the characters know. And that's one of the parts of modern, of, of, of fiction that's always tremendous fun. I know something that character doesn't know, and I'm going to turn the page to see at what point will they finally realize something that I'm in on early on. M you know, and so you're, yeah, so that, um, uh, you know, I'm using, it, it, it's quite domestic in that sense. I mean, the, the palace is almost like a small town mm -hmm. with a lot of whispering and rumours and, and gossip. And the servants and, on one level yes, knowing things. Yes, and, and, then, and then the house of Atreus is, is like a, I was going to say like an ordinary Irish family, but, I, but, not, but not quite. <laughs> <laughs> We've time for one or two more questions, I think. Is there anybody? Is there somebody there? Um, Colin. Um, one of the first books that I read of yours was your walk along the border. And uh, there's a distinct possibility I was in O'Hanlon's shed in Mullabon in South Armagh when you were there. But those are dark, dark times in the North. And I was just wondering, um, I, I read an article just recently uh, that you wrote in uh, probably The Guardian. I think, I think it was in The Guardian. And um, I think you mentioned the King's Mills uh, massacre. and. I was just wondering how all of the, uh, what happened, what was going on in the North might have had an influence on, so on your, your thought processes in this uh, book. So. Yeah, um, that, um, that was a particularly, um, I mean, Seamus Heaney describes it in his Nobel um, acceptance speech as um, the most harrowing event in, in a harrowing period in Ireland, um, which was the Kingsmill Massacre, where there were 12 men coming home in a minibus and um, they were stopped, it was, the, it was January 1976, and it was um, in Armagh, and um, they said, um, they, they, they actually thought it was the army, but it was actually the IRA, and, um, but they didn't know that, they didn't know who it was, but eventually they realised it was some paramilitary force, and they just said, there's one Catholic among the 12 of you, he must stand out. And it seems that the others tried to shield him because they presumed that he was the one who was going to be killed, because the, the, the men had guns. And, um, but when he stood out finally, they told him to run. And they shot the 11. And 10 of them were killed. One survived, Alan Black. And um, so when I was writing the book, I mean, I ended up in that village where the one Catholic who had been told to run was living and Alan Black. 
And I went to their doors, it's terrible work. I mean, the man, the, the Catholic man just looked, he looked like a walking ghost and he just said, I've never spoken about it. And as he was closing the door, he just said, you know, they were my friends, those men. I got one question in, which was, um, did you think they were going to kill you? And he said, what would you have thought? And then closed the door. And then I went over to the other house and Alan Black, he was, he was terribly kind. I mean, he brought me in and said, look, I don't want to talk about it, but there's a documentary about it uh, that, I, that I have a video of. I'll put it on for you and I'll leave you alone in the room and you can watch it. I've never watched it. I just, you know, I, and it was, 10 years, it was 10 years after the event. And, but he ended up sitting watching it with me. So the two of us watched it. And the moment when he described realizing that the other 10 were dead and he was the only one alive and that he had crawling out of the group. I mean, it was unforgettable to being in the room with him. And then we went out, I mean, he brought me for a drive out in the countryside where his son was learning to drive and we talked a lot about many other things, but it stayed in my mind always. Um, and, and it's connected with some of the atrocities that we know about. Um, Valley Sidi, for example, in the civil war of 1923, you know, that, the, the, um, um, that idea that Ireland is a country that has really gone through, in the 20th century, two sorts of civil wars. And in the case of the North, in the case of the Kingsmill Massacre, I realised, because I kept finding out more and more about it, that people, you know, things happened afterwards in retaliation for that. That was done in retaliation for something. So nothing was ever single. So that it was as though once the genie had been let out of the bottle, once, once the spiral of violence had begun, no one knew how to stop it. And um, that certainly was on my mind, just, just that even that day with Alan Black, that was 1986, neither of us knew what was to come in the North um, over, the next over the next decade, as no one in 1976 could have guessed what was coming the next decade so that it just was going to take so long just to get the thing down, to get the, what they call the peace process, um, you know, uh, um, working. And um, so, so that idea of, of violence of, uh, as something that seems to whet an appetite or just begin, uh, opens a space where more violence becomes possible was something that, that, that was certainly on my mind. And, um, you know, because I'm from Inniscorthy, um, the whole um, recent historiography about 1798, the more we know about it, the more, the more we see it uh, uh, as a set of skirmishes that, that included great amounts of um, sectarian killing and, um, and then huge massacres um, by, the, by the British forces against the um, Irish Catholic or the insurgency side, so that, uh, you know, that, that all those names of places like Boulevard, um, Slaney, Enniscorthy, um, Tubernearing, Ballyellis, are, are, they're not just in songs for me, they're, I mean, they are in songs as well, but they're actually the landscape that I was brought up in, and from the house that I was brought up in, from our housing estate, you could look across and see Vinegar Hill, and it wasn't just Vinegar Hill, it was Vinegar Hill or the Pleasant Slaney, where our heroes vainly stood back to back, and the yellows at Tullock took Father Murphy and burned his body upon the rack. And you, I would have known that from, you know, I don't know. I've, I mean, it isn't possible that they sang it as a lullaby, but, it, but, it, but you certainly knew it from always. And so all of that made its way into this book. So maybe there are more parallels than we, than we thought of originally. Um, any more questions? 
these insights into your writing process. It's really fascinating and actually a privilege to hear it. I'm wondering at what point you decided to be a writer or did you make that decision? Um, Oh, it, it's really a sad story. I mean, I, I mean, I, um, uh, you see, that's what I'm talking about <laughs> where um, um, we're all there in the house, the three of us, and um, uh, um, in, in our house, there was a rule that once you went to secondary school, you had to go into a room on your own every evening. I mean, can you imagine? And study. And there was all these new things like um, Latin and, and science, how to make methane gas. And I knew I'd never need to know that. <laughs> and I mean, I really did. And, um, it wasn't just that, but there was a teacher, um, I won't name him, but he just didn't like the look of me. I mean, I looked at him as he was going on about methane gas. I'd never heard anything sillier. And he, I looked like that, and he just didn't like me from day one. And th there were other commerce. I mean, commerce. <laughs> I mean, commerce, can you imagine? Ledgers and all the things that your assets and you have to write them all out, depreciation of assets. And I had no interest in any of that uh, at all. I still don't. And um, so the only thing that I could do was write, little, was write poems. Because I was on my own. I wasn't allowed to leave the room. I was being monitored by my mother saying, you know, Colm is studying in the, in the front room. I wasn't studying. I was just dreaming and wandering about things. And then every so often I'd write a poem and I'd revise the poem. And then um, I was lucky, I, I published a lot of poems in a teenage magazine called IRIG. It was run by the Capuchin Order. I'm still very grateful to them in a certain way. But then by the time I arrived in university, um, I realized there were a lot, Ireland was filled with the most serious, serious poets. Um, I mean, Seamus Heaney and Paul Muldoon and uh, Thomas Kensler and Ivan Boland. And a lot of them came to the campus. And then at, at the time when I was in, in UCD, Aidan Matthews published his first book of poems, and he was an undergraduate, and Jared Fanning published a lot of poems as an undergraduate, and I knew both of them. And I was always sending my poems out too, and they were always coming back. And, um, you know, David Marcus, and, you know, on, eventually he published a poem of mine, but there were many years when he didn't. And all my friends were always having poems in the Irish press on a Saturday. I mean, I'd buy it in misery, thinking, who has won this week? <laughs> and, uh, and eventually, I just gave up, and I became that thing that, you know, Dublin, Patrick Cabinet talked about the great numbers of standing poets. Army. How many did he say? The standing Army. Wasn't standing it? Army. But the Standing Army of failed poets were even worse, because they were sitting there <laughs> bitterly watching the Standing Army of published poets. <laughs> and you could be famous in Dublin at that time, you know, for having published two or three poems somewhere. Yeah, but I wasn't, even that, I wasn't even famous for that. So, um, I mean, publishing poems as a teenager in a Capuchin magazine did not, you know, uh, I can imagine, was not something you wanted Seamus Heaney to know about or, <laughs> you know, Ivan Boland. And, um, and then, there was a, then I tried, there was a new thing going on called short stories. And people were saying that the Irish experience or the Irish imagination was more suited to the short story form. So I tried short stories. And I sent them everywhere, and I, I thought they were really good, and I was always rewriting them and thinking about new ones, and they, they were no good either. So I was at the end, the very end of my business, and um, every rogue then, what do you do? You go into journalism where you can write attacks on well-known people without anyone trying to stop you. I mean, obviously, we had the libel laws, but other than the libel laws, in fact, you know, but, you know, just you could write anything that came into your head, and um, I had a great editor. Um, I worked first for David McKennan in Dublin, John Doyle, then I worked for Vincent Brown. Um, I mean, that ended badly with Vincent Brown, but it was nice for a while. And um, 
and um, you know, and uh, so I became a journalist. And then one day, I, I, I got an idea for a novel. And once I got that, I was away somewhere in a different space. And, and it's an interesting thing about writing, where you've obviously got a DNA, and um, some people have a DNA for playwriting or poetry. And I discovered that whatever I have is a DNA for writing novels. And out of that, I managed then to try and write short stories. And I even tried to play, but I mean, a famous playwright, a very good playwright said to me on the opening night of the play, maybe I should stick to, stick to the day job, you. <laughs> I mean, he meant it in a very nice way. He la we both laughed, because I knew it was true, that just go back to writing your novels. And um, so it started off sad, and, and now I'm sitting here. But um, there were, it was miserable for some of the time, because um, I really wanted to write poems, and I still do want to write poems, but I'm no good. And uh, that's an awful thing to have to realize. And you see, people will tell you very quickly, and then eventually you just have to start believing them. Uh, we take one more. Who's been waiting? There's somebody Not here, I can't see. So. Yeah. I think up there at the top. One up there, somebody up. Oh. Sorry, there's somebody up the back as well. We'll take the two then. Oh, uh, thank you very much, Colin. Uh, it's been a long time since I read the Oresteia or Oresteia, but w one of the plays is by Euripides, The Trojan Women. And I'm wondering if um, you subject, you treat that subject. It's the, the instrument, using rape as an instrument of war, the Trojan women after the, in the aftermath of the Trojan War. I'm wondering if it's tangential to the Oresteia, I understand, but it's part of the, um, you, you, the uh, Euripides corpus, and in, in, especially in the light of what happened in Sarajevo, and even now what happened in, in Boko Haram. I'm wondering if, if, that, uh, if you treat that or if you think that that would be a, a, um, something that might be treated in the future. Yeah, I, I saw an extraordinary production of it um, in Greek, um, in a Greek theatre. There's, there's a Greek theatre in Barcelona in the summer, uh, uh, must be about 20 years ago. Um, and um, it, it was really the most powerful thing I've ever seen in the theatre. And it really stayed in my mind, and I noticed they're doing it again this year. But it, it, it is something, um, yeah, it would be great just to, um, to one night for, for great to, to, to let the Trojan women into the Abbey. It would, um, waking the feminists, but I want it to be written by a woman. Otherwise, waking, you know, waking the feminists, the whole thing is that really guys should just go quiet for a good while, which is probably true. And um, so there must be some woman in the audience who could do an adaptation of the Trojan women for women actresses, women, women stage managers, women lighting people. And um, it, would, it would just tear the Abbey asunder for a while. It'd be good. Yeah, it'd be great. So there must be someone here who could do that. But I, I'm not going to do it because um, men have got to be quiet for, for at least a decade. So I'm going to be quiet. There's one question here, I think. Colm, do you really not like Leo Baradkar? <laughs> Sorry, that's not my question. That's not my question. No, I, he's, he's great. I mean, it's going to be amazing when he, he becomes Taoiseach and the whole world is going to say, Ireland, Ireland, like this is in the age of Theresa May and Donald Trump, Ireland elects 
a gay guy whose father's Indian and he's going to be prime minister of the most, you know, this conservative Catholic country. This is going to be great for a day. And then we're going to have our, you know, and then and we're going to really all revel in how modern we are, how, you know, we are the most modern country, you know, we're here because we're queer and we're, and we're all, you know, multicultural. That's what we've always wanted to be, multicultural and queer. And suddenly, um, then we're going to have to wake up on Monday morning, get up early and, you know, produce a budget. And, uh, and, and we have, you know, the, like the stuff today, the stuff about homelessness this week, you realise that I mean, there's actually a whole lot of very serious action has to be taken, which has to, which has to do, it seems to me, to underlining an, an equality agenda, which, which also includes um, the whole idea of just abolishing direct provision uh, and saying that, that, that you have to give people a chance that um, at least at some point in their lives, that's equal to other people. And that has to be written into the sort of DNA of the politics of the country. And so um, maybe he'll change um, his, um, his mind about certain things to do with equality. But um, we'll have a great day, I mean, you know, when he's elected first, because um, Ireland will be, will be able to raise a glass to multiculturalism and poly, what, what do they call it? Well, anyway, um, sexual equality. That really wasn't my question. I was only trying to all wind right, okay. you up. I was trying it, to it wind you up. To be a good question. I have a serious question, and I'm going to get all psychoanalytical here. Um, I haven't read Euripides, or if I did, I don't remember it. So um, I think the character, yeah, the question is, you described two characters watching tonight. One was yourself watching your mother uh, when you were between 12 and 15 years of age. And the other character was Orestes, is it? Orestes in the play. Um, any link between the two? Y you know, sometimes I'm working and I think, wouldn't it be great if there could just... I mean, the only way you can work is out of yourself. And the only way you're... You know, the only things we are is our experience. And um, we, we have our imagination, which I suppose is also some way or other, it, it is the unconscious arising from our experience. And there's nothing you can do about this. And I remember I was signing a book for a woman once in Australia. She seemed very nice, and she just looked at me, she was buying the book, and said, how many die in this one? <laughs> and then I looked at her, and she looked at me, meaning, you know, you and your books. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, yeah, you're absolutely right. Here, here I go, you know, I'm trying to write this, oh, I'm going on about Euripides and Greeks and, you know, Sophocles and Aeschylus and all the whole grand business of, you know, oh, I'm reading all these, you know, great, books, uh, but here I am back again with sad boy, <laughs> solitary figure, mother, dead missing father. And, I, and as I was writing this, I just got, please, is there any, like, can I just have a carnival they all go to? <laughs> and is there any way out of, can I just get out of this? But, but obviously, um, we, we, we only, I mean, I mean, I, mean, I can't, and um, uh, um, I'm just stuck with, with myself. And, and, and it's a nightmare. And, um, and if you, you're absolutely right. I mean, you think that going through psychoanalysis, which I've done, or even just talking like I'm talking now, I should be able to stop it. And I think I can. And then it starts again. I'm suddenly, I've forgotten that I, I wanted to leave all sad boys out of books in the future. I'm halfway through making up arrest days, and I realize, well, I won't do it in the next one. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. 
perfect place to end it. I'd like to thank Colin very much for thank, speaking thank to us much, this thank evening. Thank and uh, you are signing House of Names. I was going to say House of Cards there by accident. Yeah. You're signing House Game of, of Names. <laughs> Game of Cards. You're signing afterwards so people will be able to have okay. a chat with you then. Okay, right. thank you very much. Thank you all thank very you. much. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.